up, everybody? It's your boy, hardest part of the ring. Back at it again with a doozy of a podcast for you today. Not much, uh, you know. I mean, there, there's some stuff. There's some. The current landscape in wrestling today is is uh, different, to say the least. No audience, empty arena shows. Um, some companies not even filming shows at all. In fact, most companies, um, other than the big ones. But uh, yeah, really strange time in wrestling right now. And um, kind of led me to think like, man, I still love podcasting, but I don't really have much of a current product to uh, to talk about since, um, you know, they're still doing shows, but nobody's watching, man. I mean, the ratings, you can see it's right in front of you. People just don't want to see empty arena wrestling. It's there could be some good stuff. I mean, there, there have been good matches on AEW, NXT, uh, Raw, and SmackDown have had some good matches as well. But you know, there's just a um, there's just a very important element that is uh, absent from these shows, and uh, obviously, obviously, that is the crowd and um, how they uh, react to what is going on in the ring. Now, I've posed the possibility that they can just revert to you know doing backstage stuff doing uh cinematic stuff doing uh documentary style interviews with people to get their talent over to uh prepare them for when uh crowds are allowed to uh come back in but no no they just opt to uh keep having dead stale matches in the ring but regardless my point being i have uh not been very uh in tune with the current product today so the question i asked myself is like man what do i um what do i talk about here on the on the apron bump so i've i have been watching old wwf uh attitude era wwf and i'm uh i will be dropping a wrestlemania 17 podcast here in the next few weeks uh once i get to that so keep an eye out for that but i was inspired by a recent 83 Weeks podcast. And if you're not aware, 83 Weeks is the podcast that Eric Bischoff does with Conrad Thompson, where they basically uh, just, uh, I mean, if you're, if you're familiar with any of Conrad Thompson's uh, podcasts, he basically has a wrestling personality that he interviews on a given subject. Now, so that subject can be a, could be a show, could be a wrestler, could be a, an era in itself, could be anything. But a recent 83 Weeks podcast with Eric Bischoff that I listened to was about a TNA lockdown. I think it was a 2010, I believe was the year, but they basically covered that, not only that show, but Eric's um, presence in TNA as a whole. And I found it very, very compelling because especially at that time, man, there was so, it was such a train wreck, man. I mean, it was resembling, uh, you know, WCW when it was having its downfall, right? So many cooks in the kitchen as far as management goes. Um, a lot of talent, but no one knowing how to use them. It was a, um, you know, once you get into the, the, the 2010s, mid-2010s, TNA starts to, um, they start to fall off that cliff, right? And, um, you know, they're still around. Impact, they've been rebranded as Impact, um, but it's it's a completely different show now. But the point is, I listened to this podcast, and they basically went over this show, and they brought up 
the Impact Plus app that that uh, Impact has, which I had uh, I hadn't thought about in a while. I guess I assumed it wasn't really much, like because you know Ring of Honor has something similar with the Honor Club. I think they have different options, but like the the the, the nine ninety nine a month um, thing that's kind of been established among all these wrestling companies. Their Honor Club is like select matches from the past and like. Um, discounts on pay-per-views like it's not like as intensive as say if the wwe network is you know the wwe network has every raw every smackdown every single pay-per-view that wwe slash wwf has ever put on um along with you know some wcw stuff ecw stuff you know old awa uh, mid-south some select uh territory shows as well as documentaries i i I could go on and on about what the WWE network has. And I assumed Impact Plus was going to be like a, uh, much like TNA was kind of like a WWE light in that sense. Now I kind of assumed that's what the app would be, but I, I, I gave it a try. I, uh, I went with the one month free trial that you get, much like the WWE network. And I hop into it and they have every single TNA pay-per-view every single TNA TV show all the way as back as from from what I can tell 2004 which is basically around the time that they got out of the asylum and into the impact zone down in Florida Um, it's when they brought in the six-sided ring it's when TNA became TNA that we all kind of remember right it's when they started um, establishing their own identity and you know here in 2004 you know, we're a few years out from WCW folding and uh, we're a few years into WWE's monopoly on the wrestling business. And, you know, the time in WWE is kind of slowed down. Ratings are dropping. Um, they're still kind of trying to build up stars. They got John Cena and Batista in the, in the infant stages over there, as well as like Randy Orton and uh, some of the other talents that they had over there. But the wrestling was kind of slow at this point. And WWE had not seen competition to any extent, um, really since like the late nineties, because that's pretty much when WCW peaked. And that was pretty much the last time that they were truly competitive with WWF at the time. And so 2004 hits and TNA has their first three hour pay-per-view titled victory road. It's their first, I get that they've had that they started out just purely pay-per-view, right? Um, I don't know what the price was. I'm sure it was a cheaper kind of a uh, pay-per-view, maybe one or two hours and um, select weekly shows. Yeah, this is their first. This is almost like like they're, they, they know this is where everything is going to begin to kind of snowball, right? This is their first three-hour pay-per-view. They have all this talent. They have talent that's starting to come in. Huge legends on the show. Um, established guys that have uh, previously been in the WWE or uh or elsewhere but um a lot of established talent on this roster and now they have this platform to put on a show that could potentially draw viewers in from a uh a fatigued wwe audience right so yeah i figure today we'll take a gander at tna victory road 2004 let's go back look at this show and relive this crazy time for this company. Um, lots of good, lots of bad, lots of entertainment. And that's really all we're looking for, right?
So TNA Turning Point 2004 opens up and right away, man, it feels epic. I mean, as far as like video packages go for this company at this time, most of it was pretty garbage. Um, you, we'll, we'll take a look at that as we go throughout the show. But man, this opening little intro here really made this show feel like a big deal. They kind of um, establish what this company is. Um, some of their big stars that they have, you Jeff Jarrett, who's the uh, world champion. Uh, you have AJ Styles, who's like the, the poster boy for the company as far as homegrown talent goes. And then you got a guy like Jeff Hardy, who is in a weird point in his life. But, I mean, he's probably the most marketable star they have at this point, um, which is why he is in the main event. So, really good intro here right away. And after that, they cut to the Impact Zone, the all-famous Impact Zone. And uh, they do a camera shot of Mike Tanay and Don West, which, by the way, one of the most underrated commentary duos of all time. I love these two together. Mike Tanay is just so easy to listen to. Uh, his passion for the business just carries through so easily, and he's so knowledgeable about everything. And then Don West, I kind of remember Don West getting a bunch of hate uh, back in the day because he's kind of like, he, he kind of babbles sometimes and he's, he's kind of, kind of goes off the rails a little bit. But the dude was, his, his like, his fire and his, his excitement was on a level that we have never seen before, dude. I loved Don West. I don't know what he's doing nowadays, but I hope he finds himself back in commentary at some point. If he's not doing that already, he might actually still be working for Impact. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, as, as like a backstage guy, but nonetheless, love these two guys. Um, just wanted to get that out there. And they basically throw it to the first match, which is weird. So it's I've probably said this before, and I'll say it again. TNA, their key to success was. And I guess still is establishing something that is different from what the competition is putting out. And at this point in 2004, they they were clearly they had their sights on WWE. They wanted to be on the same level. They this isn't saying that you know we're back in the Monday Night Wars and they're trying to put them out of business. No, 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 no. I mean they reference WWE a lot during during the show in varying ways. They kind of want to be at least uh, mentioned in the same breath as WWE. And then in later years, they kind of, once again, they kind of become uh, just a, a light version of what WWE is. They're pretty much doing the same thing, but on a lower scale. But back here, back in this time, through the mid 2000s, they put a heavy emphasis on the X division. And the X division is that differentiating factor that TNA has and WWE doesn't. This uh, fast paced, High-flying action is something that WWE is not giving the audience. And not necessarily just cruiserweights, right? We see people like Samoa Joe come in later, and it's... I think they said it's not about weight limits, it's about no limits. But it's about that type of style that uh, you didn't see, really, in a mainstream kind of capacity until this point. And during this time, they were putting a lot of emphasis on the X Division. And I think that was what drew a lot of people to TNA. Because, you know, 2004, they're still kind of revving up, but... By the time 2005, 2006, 2007 hits, TNA has a cult following, like a very strong following. They're not necessarily competing on the ratings, but TNA is making waves. And 2004, this first pay-per-view, kind of establishes that right off the bat with their first match here. It's kind of a kind of a weird 
concept. So it's a gauntlet, right? So it's basically, it's a Royal Rumble. It's a Royal Rumble, but when it gets to the final two, you have to pin or submit your opponent. That's basically the only difference here, and it's 20 people. And I should note as well, uh, this match is for the X Division Cup. What does that mean? I'm not totally sure, but that's what the winner gets here. Um, so they're <laughs> kind of <laughs> dipping their toes into the the negatives of what WCW was, kind of having ridiculous match concepts. But that was kind of the charm of TNA back in the day. I kind of look back on it now, and I look at like all the crazy cage matches that they had, Ultimate X, all that stuff. Some of it was very good. Some of it was just silly for the sake of being silly. But the Scotland match here was um, really just a way to showcase how much talent that they had, so much international, um, unique talent that they had, and uh, how the X Division was setting them apart from the competition. So you had, you had 20 guys in this match. It starts off with Kazarian versus Sanjay Dutt. You know, both both these guys end up being big stars in TNA. Kazarian's uh, right now in AEW, first AEW tag team champion. It was really interesting to see some of these guys in their infant stages in their careers. Like Kazarian's like just a part of a tag team. He's kind of just a guy in the background, but he ends up being like a pretty, he has a, a brief main event stint here. And, uh, and TNA Sanjay Dutt, of course, ends up being like a, a mainstay in the X division as one of the, um, ends up being like a legend in the company as well. Um, he might even still be there too, or is he in WWE or did he get fired? I don't know. There's so much happening. It's hard to, hard to keep track. You know what? I do have a list here. I'll just go ahead and list them off. You have Kazarian, Sanjay Dutt, Puma, LA Park, Jamel Clark, Miyamoto, Michael Shane, Hector Garza, Nozawa, Mickey Betts, Mikey Bots, Mikey, Mikey Bats, Mikey, I don't know, Alex Shelley, Matt Seidel, Sonny Siaki, Jason Cross, Shark Boy, Psychosis, D-Ray 3000, Amazing Red, Spanky, Chris Saban. I list all those people and there's some who you're like, who the fuck is that? Some people just kind of fell off after this for, for whatever reason. I mean, I guess, I mean, clearly see they have such a, a depth in this division. They have 20 people, so it's only a matter of time before, you know, people get lost in the shuffle. Like, you got you have a guy like Jarrell Clark, who I had never heard of until I watched this show. But apparently, his nickname was Mr. 630. So I guess at this point, he was really one of the only guys doing a 630 splash. Meanwhile... In current times, you'll have a match like, what was it recently? It was like, it was either like Sammy Guevara or Will Ospreay were having a match with somebody and like both guys did a 630 in the same match. And then you have, you have Ricochet doing the 630. It's like a, it's like the Canadian Destroyer, right? You know, this is a time where, where moves were like special. It doesn't mean like they were the only guys that they can do them, but you know, Jarrell Clark, his whole gimmick was, hey, I can do a 630. And like Petey Williams, during this time, he was doing the Canadian Destroyer, which at a time, I know it's shocking to hear, but it was a finisher at one point in time. It was finishing matches, not just a transition move that every single goddamn person does. No, no, no. It was actually pretty special during this time. And that's kind of what I like about this period in wrestling. You have... But the wrestling in the ring was based on storytelling and not just 
doing moves after each other, right? It's it wasn't just you do a move, then I do a move, then you do a move, then I do a move. And th- th- I mean, this gauntlet match it kind of was, but that's just kind of the nature of you know just twenty people in a ring. Well, how much storytelling you're going to have during the match, right? But yeah, you have a guy like Jarrell Clark, um, Hector Garza. Obviously, he's the predecessor to Angel Garza, which is crazy to see. You know, Angel's such a big, a big aspect of Monday Night Raw now, and here you go seeing his uh, his uncle. Um, but yeah, very interesting to see um, the kind of lineage of that family. But yeah, as far as the match goes, it was solid. I mean, like I said, it's a, you know it's a Royal Rumble style match, so it's kind of a clusterfuck. But Mike Tanay and Don West were, like I said, they were so great, man, and they were able to um, keep up with this fast paced action. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that's at the time, it was kind of the antithesis of what WWE was putting out. And um, they are really establishing, hey, we're here, we're different, enjoy what we're putting out. So it was a good way to start the show, in my opinion. Kind of getting uh, a little glimpse of everybody in the X Division uh, that they had at this time. And Hector Garza ends up getting the win. Um, I was kind of surprised. I mean, I mean, I haven't... I, this, this is the first time I've ever seen this show, so I don't really... Um, I didn't know the results of a lot of the matches... I mean, does Hector Garza stick around for much longer after this? I don't really remember him being a, uh, a focal point of TNA. I probably w- started watching TNA maybe like 2006. Maybe I'm misremembering, but Hector Garza gets the win here. They clearly have big plans for this guy, and uh, I guess we'll... Um, I'm sure I'll do more pay-per-view reviews going forward. I'll probably uh, do the next pay-per-view here in a few weeks. So Hector Garza gets the win here. Good for him. And after that, you have a... Oh, man... Okay, I guess they got like a an election going on to decide who's going to be the director of authority. I guess that's the name they're given for the general manager at this time. I don't know. But the two uh the two candidates are Dusty Rhodes and Vince Russo. Man. Um and throughout the show they have these little like political style ads. So like right after this X Division match. They have a um, like a I'm Dusty Rhodes and I approve this message style ad, putting over Dusty and why he he'd be the best uh, director of authority, and then uh, yeah, later in the night they have one for Vince Russo. It seems like almost after every match they had one of these, which is a little silly. They had like the polls. They had they had some guy backstage like moderating the polls and like who was voting. I don't know if this was like a like a shoot vote or if it was just all nonsense but they had like dusty Rhodes is leading by 10 percent in the polls like it was so silly but i don't know it's all kind of a mess but speaking of messes this next match we have an eight man tag team match now i'm just i'm, I'm looking at the people that are in this match and i'm laughing okay, you have kid cash who right now is being pushed as like a the top guy in the company which is weird and then you have his bodyguard fucking lance archer i totally forgot he was in tna he looks like a goddamn jabroni here (laughs) just he's kind of lanky and he has really straight blonde hair or like i guess like an ombre kind of hair color um he looks like a goofball he doesn't look intimidating at all he just happens to be tall but man what a sight um he's going by the name dallas here but it's it's fucking lance archer and then so you have Kid Cash, Dallas, and the Naturals, I forget their names, but who cares, versus Johnny B. Bad, a.k.a. Mark Marrow, Ron Killings, a.k.a. R-Truth, 
Eric Watts, who I had never heard of, but he reminds me of Eli Cottonwood from NXT. Give that a goog if you don't know who that is. And the Empire Saint, who seemed just like a uh, creative character in 2K. You know, like when you go to create a guy and they just had like the default guy. That's that's who this Empire Saint guy seems like to me. Uh, never heard of him before. Never heard of him after. Don't really feel like researching him. Before the match, there's a interview with Kid Cash, Lance Archer, and the Naturals. Kid Cash is basically establishing himself as not only the leader of the team, but the quote greatest of all time very very unique nickname there cash um and lance archer just sitting there being quiet and ladylike looking um the match itself is kind of a mess uh the baby faces win which by the way is the mark marrow her truth team baby faces win after truth does like a weird pedigree type move on one of the naturals gets the win here Felt like I wasted my time watching this match. Um, next match. <laughs> the ne- <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking at my notes that I took when I watched the show. And I totally forgot about this match. It's midgets. Midgets. You have a uh, Masquerita Sagrada, who you, you guys might know if you uh, if you've watched Lucha Underground. Didn't know he was in TNA. Good to know. So it's Masquerita Sagrada versus. Um, I d- I didn't get the other guy's name, but I don't think it matters. All that matters is that the other midget was uh fat and dressed like a pirate. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, let's just uh call him the pirate. Um, so Masquerita Sagrada comes out, then the pirate comes out to the George Lopez theme, you know, cause he's Mexican, and then. <laughs> It's such a weird time, man. 2004 was wild, and you have just midgets. They're, they're calling them midgets, by the way, which I guess isn't PC nowadays, but then you have just over-the-top, stereotypical Mexican music that they're coming out to. So they have the match. You know, uh, Masquerita Sagrada is actually pretty competent and talented as far as, you know, his restrictions go. Um, but the pirate, man, he was, I don't know. I don't know if he's ever wrestled before, honestly. He was pretty much just a, uh, a punching bag for Masquerita. But um, at one point, the pirate does get some offense in. And actually, um, he lays out Masquerita Sagrada with like a clothesline or something. And then he like, <laughs> he doesn't pin Masquerita. He like, Puts his ear to his chest to see if he's breathing, and then he gets the ref to like check if he's dead or not. And then he asks the ref to pray with him for Masquerita, I guess, you know, because he's dead or what. I don't know. It's a whole thing. But um, as they're praying, Masquerita miraculously comes back. He kips up, he fires up, gives the pirate a hip toss, rolls him up for a win. <laughs> Uh, Masquerita gets the win here. It was a, it was, a, it was, it was clunky. It was a mess, but it was hilarious, and I was thoroughly entertained. I don't know if they had aspirations of like establishing like a midget division here, but I don't think it lasted long. If it did, uh, based off this match, but good times were had watching this match by me. After that, you have a um another weird <laughs> director of authority election promo. Um, I don't know. Are fans actually voting here? I'm not sure, but you have this like backstage interviewer guy. He's kind of seems like a, uh, like a, like a store brand, Jesse Ventura kind of, uh, giving us the, uh, 
the updates on the polls. You know, uh, the, the Vince Russo is leading in the polls at fifty-two percent. We'll keep you updated as throughout the night. Like, <laughs> just silliness. But um, Conan and Road Dog interrupt them here. It's kind of a backstage segment. Um, so they're in the Three Live Crew, which is a faction that consists of Conan, Road Dog, or BG James as he's going by, and uh, Ron Killings. So they're keeping Ron Killings and Road Dog here together because, man, there must have been just money left on the table from their, their stint in WWF, right? Anybody remember that Get Rowdy song? Good stuff. When they tried to make Road Dog a gangster, which I guess they're still trying to do for whatever reason, but who knows? But Conan and Road Dog here are uh, building up for their tag team title match later tonight. So I guess we got that coming up on the show. Next, however, is an appearance by Scott Hall. Um, so the main event of the show is a ladder match between Jeff Hardy and Jeff Jarrett. And one of the little uh, gimmicks to the match here is that Scott Hall is in Jeff Jarrett's corner, whereas Kevin Nash is in Jeff Hardy's corner, supposedly. Um, you can see <laughs> you can see the swerve a mile away, but. Either way, that's later in the night. But Scott Hall comes out to the ring here, gives a little promo. This is a weird time in his life, too, I believe. Um, still kind of dealing with his drug issues. But basically says he's a pioneer of the ladder match. And uh, he'll have a close eye on it. And may the best Jeff win. Clever. Um, that's a pretty, pretty short promo here. Really just to get his name out there. Really just to get him out there on TNA's pay-per-view and... Kind of uh, set the tone that, hey, we got legends too. We got legends too. Did what it was designed to do, I guess. After that, you have the tag team title match. You have the champions, Team Canada versus the Three Live Crew. Now, I went over the Three the three Live Crew uh, earlier, but Team Canada, man. Robert Roode and Eric Young. Very young in their careers. <laughs> Very interesting to see. Um, but yeah. The foreign heels are Team Canada, obviously, and the current, is it TNA Tag Team Champions or NW? I think it's TNA Tag Team Champions. Um, I don't know. I don't think that's NWA. Whatever the case may be. They're the Tag Team Champions defending against the three live crew. You know, the pre-match stuff, Road Dogg's still doing his, uh, his little shtick on the mic, kind of um, modified from the... Uh, New Age Outlaws kind of tailoring it to uh, his new faction here, the Three Live Crew. Um, so he knows where his money's made. And um, But as far as the match itself, uh, Team Canada actually worked really well together. Bobby Roode and Eric Young, um, they were together, you know, whether it was as opponents or teammates throughout <laughs> most of their career, even into WWE. Um they worked really well together. I liked them as a team. Robert Roode's haircut was fucking atrocious, but um, still, he was pretty damn smooth in the ring at this point. Even um, you could definitely see like he would get more nuance and a little more of a uh, unique spin to his character as time would go on. But uh, him and Eric did really well here. Conan on the other side of the ring is built like a goddamn gorilla, dude. Holy shit, that dude was huge. Um, far be it from the <laughs> like his, uh, his style in WCW, but um, him and uh, BG James, aka Road Dog, 
they end up winning the titles here. Uh, Conan hits, uh, I believe it's Eric Young with the K factor. So it's like X factor, but Conan's doing it. So it's a K factor. And uh, the three live crew win the tag team titles. Good stuff here. Uh, pretty okay match. Nothing to, to write home about, but very interesting to see um, these uh, these incarnations of these characters in the match at this point in their careers and how they blend together. After that, you have some promos for the Monsters Balls match. Monsters Balls? Monsters Ball match. It's a, uh, a triple threat match between Abyss, Raven, and Monty Brown. All three of these guys are like top tier TNA as far as I'm concerned. You know, Raven's been everywhere in wrestling, but his his stint in TNA was a damn good one, dude. Um, WWF kind of, you know, he was like, it was what it was. He was kind of a, I don't know more of a comedy act than anything. He didn't really embrace what uh, he was able to do in ECW or uh, what even he would go on to do in ROH or TNA. Um, But TNA here, Raven has a great character to him, kind of a reincarnated version of his ECW character. And then obviously have Abyss who is, if you have a Mount Rushmore of guys in TNA, uh, Abyss has a strong case to be one of those four was there since damn near day, day one, and I think even still works there. No, I think he, I, you know what? I think he actually works for WWE as a producer now, doesn't he? But he was with TNA for a long ass time, dude. Through so many incarnations of his character, at this point, Abyss was a monster, dude. Um, got compared to Kane a lot, but I think Abyss had his own little spin on it, and I think he was a very uh, believable uh, monster. A monster is a, is a term that gets overused, but Abyss was the uh, the epitome of that word here in 2004. And then you have Monty Brown, who is one of my low-key favorites of all time, dude. He is so entertaining, dude. The pounce, his, his energy. I loved Monty Brown, and I was really looking forward to uh, watching him later in the show in this Monsters Ball match. But um, the premise here, now I don't know if they did this in future Monsters Ball matches, but the premise here is that all three guys are basically locked in a dark room with no food or water for 24 hours. So I guess the idea is that once they get out, once they get let loose, they are so like deranged and so hysterical that they'll just do whatever it takes to beat their opponent. Like I guess that was the idea. Um I don't know if it really translated well, but we'll get to that when that match uh, comes in this show. And after that, you have none other than Roddy Piper come out to the ring. Who man. Again here, you know, same thing they were doing with Scott Hall. They're putting out these huge legends out there to kind of establish the fact that, hey, TNA is no one to sneeze at, man. TNA is here. TNA is queer, and we are going to take it to the WWE. And Roddy Piper is pretty much like specifically referencing that in his promo. Um, I can't blame TNA for doing this, man. They have all these st- the star power. Fuck it. Bring all these guys in there. I love it. Give them a payday. Give TNA some credibility. 
Um, yeah, can't blame can't blame them for doing that. But they don't stop there. No, no, no. You have uh, Piper out there cutting a promo, and then he ends up inviting Jimmy Snuka out to the ring. And crazy, I mean, considering that that Snuka documentary just came out on a uh, Dark Side of the Ring, I guess like a week or two ago, it was uh, crazy to see Jimmy Snuka just walk out there, knowing how insane this dude was, especially in this time of life. But Snooker comes out to the ring, so him and Piper are kind of going. I guess they aren't really going back and forth. Piper's really just kind of talking to Snooker. Um, but he alludes to their uh, their Piper's pit spot uh, a few decades ago, where uh, Roddy Piper hit Jimmy Snooker in the head with a coconut. It's a very iconic scene. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. But this is kind of what Roddy Piper and Jimmy Snooker, what their careers are like. That's like a main part of both of their careers. So they're referencing that. And uh, Piper is basically asking Snooka to hit him with a coconut. He gives Jimmy Snooka a coconut. He turns his back. He asks him to hit him. Jimmy Snooka doesn't hit him. Why? I don't know why. He's just a psychopath. But as this is all going on, Kid Cash once again comes back out. Um, Him and the Naturals, who I guess are a team, um, judging by... Oh, yeah, they are a team, right? So Kid Cash comes out along with the Naturals. If you remember, they were a team earlier in the night. And uh, they all attack Jimmy Snuka because, uh, I don't know, I guess they're heels and they want to attack the the guy that everybody's cheering. So these guys are ganging up on Jimmy Snuka. Then Roddy Piper is having none of it. He starts fighting back. He starts uh, trying to pull Kid Cash and the Naturals off of him. He tries to get into it himself. Um, he's obviously overcome by everybody, all these young guys. And then, um, <laughs> and Sanjay Dutt comes out to make the save. Who else do you want to save your life? But Sanjay Dutt, um, he comes out to make the saves, but he ends up getting hit in the head with a coconut by Kid Cash. Bag out, bag out. Um, just a bunch of silliness here. Once again, kind of a mess. I guess they're trying to put over Kid Cash here. And they're putting over how dastardly this coconut hit was. Because the Naturals, who are aligned with Kit Cash, are basically like, oh, man, that was too far. That was too far, man. You shouldn't have done that. And Kit Cash is like, well, what the hell? What would I do? And then they cut away from it. Um, weird, weird little deal there. But uh, I guess we'll see uh, what happens with that. After that, you have some knockout action. You know, the knockouts division... It's kind of the precursor to the women's revolution in WWE. Um, not at this point, but uh, in a few years, they you know they introduce the knockouts uh, title and they start treating women's wrestling like a uh, on the same tier as the men's. And they did they were uh, way ahead of the curve in regards to that, at least compared to WWE um, years before they were they were years before WWE was doing it um, with you know Gail Kim, Awesome Kong. The beautiful people, ODB. I'm sure there's others that I'm that I'm forgetting, but the knockouts division ended up being a pretty uh, competitive division. But at this point, it was still kind of um, they're making that transition from hey women are valets to hey women are wrestlers too. So it's a weird little transition period right here. Um, you have this girl Trinity, who was a uh, with TNA for a long time, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, she ended up being one of the uh, main components of the knockouts division, but. Trinity here is basically given an open challenge to anybody that wants to face her in a match. Who answers the call? None other than a debuting Jacqueline. 
Yes, that Jacqueline. The Jacqueline that won the Cruiserweight title in WWE like two months before this. She debuts in TNA, faces Trinity. Uh, pretty decent match here as far as um, the early incarnation of the, uh, the knockouts division goes. Trinity actually ends up winning, which has surprised me. I figured they'd probably build up Jacqueline, but no, I guess they're uh, they're putting all their eggs on uh, on Trinity. So Trinity wins with a moonsault. Pretty solid match, I guess. Um, like I said, no knockouts title yet, so there's really no end goal. But um, I'm sure they had that in the works at this point, at least uh, the beginning stages. But then after that, we have the Monsters Ball match. Like I said, we have Abyss versus Monty Brown versus Raven. Um, kind of a, so. If you're, so, like I said, the premise of this match was these guys were locked up in confinement for so long that they just oh, they just go insane. You know, they can't eat, they can't drink, they can't see anything. So they're just they're just unchained monsters. When in reality, it was kind of just a triple threat hardcore match. It was a pretty solid one. It was a pretty solid match, but um, you know. Nothing too crazy, especially when uh, we look at future Monsters Ball matches. But I guess this is the first one, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but pretty good match. We have uh, Monty Brown. was. I mentioned before how entertaining he was, but man, I forgot how strong this dude was. There was one spot where uh, he picked up Abyss. And we all, we all know how fucking huge Abyss is. He picked him up for a, a power slam, but kind of like staggered with him. Like his weight kind of displaced to where Monty Brown had to like maneuver himself to like keep him up. You have to you have to watch it for yourself to see how impressive it was. But this dude was massively, massively strong and very impressive. Um, I don't think he actually ended up ever getting like a world title run or anything, which is jaw dropping to me, dude. That dude had everything. Um, and he was severely underused as Marcus Corvon in WWE. But nonetheless, I'm going to get off my Monty Brown soapbox real quick. Um, and then there's another point of this in this match. You had the old thumbtack spot. Abyss pulls out a bag, drops the thumbtacks in the corner of the ring, and then uh, sets up Monty Brown on the top turnbuckle to give him a superplex onto the thumbtacks. But Raven comes in and power bombs Abyss off the second rope into the thumbtacks. Brutal looking spot. No matter how many times you see it, a thumbtack spot always makes me fucking cringe, dude. Brutal, brutal, brutal. The match ends when um, Abyss is on the apron. And Raven knocks Abyss off the apron through a table that is set up on the outside. But right afterwards... Monty Brown comes and gives Raven the pounce through another table that was set up in the corner of the ring. Uh, pretty cool little finish there. Monty Brown gets the win, as he should. They then come back. Shane Douglas forgot he was also a part of TNA. He was, I guess, an interviewer at this point. Um, and he's looking for Kevin Nash. There's a there's a limo that, that pulled in out back. And... Uh, Shane Douglas is he's he, he stomps towards it with a microphone. He's he's demanding to see who's in the limo. The limo, limo driver comes out. He says, uh, "Kevin Nash is not in this in this fucking limo. Whatever I don't know. Whatever accent he had. 
again. Um, the limo driver says, Kevin Nash is not in this limo. But Shane Douglas doesn't believe him. He's, he's outraged. He's out there for like three segments during the show. I guess he was out there for like an hour trying to get in this limo, trying to speak to whoever was in it. You don't find out till like the very end of the show. So stay tuned. After that, we had another backstage interview, this time with Petey Williams. Once again, his hair was fucking terrible, dude. I don't know what it is with these guys in 2004, but they they did not have hair figured out then. I don't know if it was a transition period or what, but man, there was a lot of grease, a lot of, a lot of spaghetti noodle hair back then. Fuck, dude. So yeah, we have an interview with Petey Williams building up to his match with AJ Styles for the X Division champion. Petey is the champion here. And um, really the story of the match, honestly is um the Canadian destroyer which is such a it's such a foregone it's such such a such a far gone concept now that the Canadian destroyer is used like fucking five times every match in AEW right but looking forward to this match especially in this point of these guys careers both are really hungry and both have so much to come in their TNA careers so it's really interesting to see them uh early on um there's a video package for their match that comes on after it which I spoke very highly of the the pay-per-view intro, but their match video packages are awful, dude. It is hilariously bad. It's like someone that just learned how to make slideshows in Windows Media Player <laughs> with like weird it's like like you know when you see like shitty compilations on YouTube with like formats that don't even match each other and like varying like video qualities and stuff it it was very bad but i think they would eventually figure it out but it was very very funny to see them in their uh in their early stages of uh building these video packages here but the match itself aj and pd was fucking awesome dude probably my favorite of this show um i'll actually say definitely my favorite of this show crowd was super hot dueling chance for both guys this is honestly man i mean this is what wrestlers today try to be they try to be this but they're unsuccessful they like to do flashy moves but that's really it yeah you have wrestler a versus wrestler b wrestler a does a flashy move wrestler b does a flashy move wrestler b does a top rope whatever the fuck sent on wrestler b does a plancha backflip uh backbreaker pile driver hey let's take turns doing moves until they're done and then there's a pin that's really what a lot of matches in modern day wrestling are and it's very unfortunate because you look at this match back in 2004 and yeah they're doing all these flashy moves but there's also, there's like a fire, there's like an intensity to everything that they're doing in there. There's impact. There's, it's like, they're doing these moves, but they're doing them to try to hurt their opponent. Like, it sounds so basic and like, it sounds like it should be in every match. Like, it shouldn't even be thought about. But that's not what wrestling is nowadays. There's no selling today. They were, there was selling. There was a lot of good selling in this match. And a lot of good intensity and a lot of, a lot of intent. Every move had a reason. That's what made this match so great. It wasn't just the, uh, oh, they did a lot of cool moves. No, there was a real, there was an intricate story told, and uh, it was weaved throughout the match. Petey Williams is trying to hit his Canadian Destroyer, the, the, the finisher that ends all matches. He's trying to do it over and over again in this match, but AJ, he has a counter for it. In every, in every situation, he has a counter for it. And Petey doesn't <laughs> combat this by, look, Petey's the heel, right? 
He's working like a heel. He's not trying to get this is awesome chance. He's a heel. He knows his place in the match and he knows what his job is. So in the finish of the match, you know, it's not a, a, a flashy, funky counter for counter, good wrestling counter hold move strike. It's Petey Williams grabbing a fucking hockey stick wrapped in the Canadian flag because he's Canadian. Petey Williams has this hockey stick and he's about to hit AJ with it, but the ref grabs it. The ref grabs the hockey stick. He, he goes to put the hockey stick away. Petey takes this opportunity to grab the X Division title belt and smash AJ in the head with it. This leads to him finally hitting the Canadian Destroyer for the pin. Petey Williams is still your X Division champion. Great finish here. Preserve the integrity of the heel and him being a heel using dirty tactics to win, but also preserving the integrity of his finisher as a finisher that finishes. Let that soak in for a minute. A finisher that finishes. Who would have thought? Awesome match here. Love to see it. I can't wait to watch more X Division matches as I uh, as I binge early TNA. Because, uh, I mean, the X Division title, you can see here, it's positioned as a, a semi-main event title. It's not just the, the, the opening bell, the opening match, you know, kickoff match. It's not the middle of the card, uh, who gives a fuck match. It's a, it's, it's positioned as a top title here. Just happens to be a different division. So, TNA, they really hit the mark with the X Division. I really wish they would have, uh, emphasized it more as years went on instead of kind of letting it, uh, downgrade to like a lower tier belt but nonetheless good match here between aj and pd after that we have a doozy um this is a match that i expected to be a barn burner but was probably may have been the worst match of the night um triple x versus america's most wanted now you look at the people in this match and you're thinking man we got Triple X, right? Christopher Daniels and Elix Skipper. If you don't know who Elix Skipper is, you might know him from that clip of him walking on top of the cage to Hearn Conrana somebody. I think it was James Storm. Super athletic guy. Christopher Daniels. I mean, I don't need to tell you how good Christopher Daniels is. Versus America's Most Wanted, James Storm and Chris Harris. Uh, James Storm, you know, I mentioned before that uh, that TNA Mount Rushmore, I think you, you'd have to throw James Storm on there as well. Another guy there from day one and was there for a long, long time. Ended up being a world champion there. And Chris Harris, who was um, top tag team stars the company ever saw. Um, a long time with James Storm. These two together were a great team. Um, a lot, a lot of cohesion there. They were together for a long time and had a lot of great matches. This, however, was not one of them. But I mean, I think with what they were given, I mean, it was just destined for failure. Um, I mean, you have the the match before this, right? The X Division title match. That kind of depicts where TNA thrived. This match here kind of shows where uh, TNA was kind of lost in the weeds here. Another kind of overly complex match stipulation. It's a last man standing elimination match for a tag team match. 
very hard to wrap your head around it, but basically, you have to you you pin up you be you pin a guy, and then the referee starts the count to the count of ten. And if you can't make it the count of ten, you're eliminated. Now, the the very nature of that means that people are going to get pinned a lot in this match, which just makes everybody look weak right off the bat, you know. And that's kind of what happened. Um, people had to lose a lot of times in one match, and that helps nobody. And other than that, the outside of the gimmick, the crowd just wasn't into it, man. I think the gimmick played a lot into that, though. It was just a little bit too contrived. But I think also Elix Skipper at some point in this match got concussed because that dude was botching and fumbling all over the place. There was one spot where uh, Christopher Daniels was getting pinned by one of the... Uh, I think it was James Storm. And Elix Skipper was clearly um, planning to break up that pin with like a top rope move. But he just kind of like sat on the top rope and like slowly kind of fell off onto James Storm. It was very clunky. There was a lot of spots that were very slow and awkward looking. Um, he fucked his finisher up. The I think he calls it the play of the day. You might know it. MVP calls it the playmaker. Or uh, Randy Orton used to do it. It was the overdrive. It was... He basically like went through the motion, but kind of just fell over. He had to be concussed here. I'm sure he was. As a matter of fact, later in the night, during the main event, um, at one point during the main event, they just gave like a random update on Elix Skipper saying that he was concussed. Um, I don't know if it was, if that's like a if that was like a shoot update or if they were just saying that to kind of give an explanation on why Elix was fucking up so much. Whatever the case may be, I I thought that was very interesting that they actually mentioned it in the next match. But this match right here, America's Most Wanted ends up getting the win here. The end of the match saw... What's his fucking name? Chris Harris. He hit his finisher on Elix Skipper onto a chair, which is basically like a spinning power slam, right? Elix Skipper lands headfirst on the chair. Chris Harris pins him. Now, this match is designed to be the the finished, right? So, it's going to be one, two, three. But Elix actually, like, kicks out at two and a half. But Chris Harris kind of holds him down. And they call for the bell and pretend that didn't happen. Um, and then, in the next match, Don West is like, yeah, I, I guess it, it looked like he was kicking out. But I think he was just convulsing. <laughs> I fucking love Don West, man. They had to do what they had to do to get that over. But disaster, nonetheless. Yeah, very, very, very botchy. Very clunky, but they would make up for that in their next match, which I believe is at the next pay-per-view. I believe it is that steel cage match that I referenced earlier, if I'm not mistaken. Then after that, finally, we have the results for the Director of Operations election. Finally, Dusty Rhodes ends up winning. They have like a little split screen here. They have Dusty Rhodes on one side. They have Vince Russo on the other side. Both are awaiting the results. And then, uh, I don't know, I think it's Jeremy Borash reads the results and he says, you're winner of the director of operations, Dusty Rhodes. And then Vince Russo has no reaction. Dusty Rhodes comes out, babbles on the mic for a little bit. And uh, no angle was set up. No, uh, this was no storyline thing. Well, I guess it, it might have literally just been a, a, sh- a real vote. Who knows? But. Um, so yeah, I guess Dusty Rhodes is the authority figure now. And, um, you know, as he's talking, he's referencing WWE a lot. He's basically saying that, um, we're going to get their attention and, uh, we're going to show them who we are and whatever the fuck. I don't know. Whatever, you know, 
I love Dusty Rhodes, but it was very badly in this. He was very badly in this promo. Um, yeah, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. Then we have the main event for the NWA World Championship: Jeff Hardy versus the champion Jeff Jarrett in a ladder match. First of all, fuck Jeff Jarrett. Second of all, this match is weird. Jeff Hardy is in like a weird point of his life at this point. I think he's recently released from WWE. Um, and of course, getting pushed right to the main event as soon as he gets to TNA. And um, I can't really blame him. He's one of the most over superstars that's ever existed. I mean, and he's a very mainstream uh kind of character that you could put on a pay-per-view poster and you can kind of build a show around so i uh, do not blame them putting jeff hardy in the main event here but uh man my man is on some kind of drugs in this match dude he comes out he's in the stage where he's wearing the paint on his whole body but it's very just wet and like dripping off of him and then He's like kind of running out to the ring and then uh, he's fucking running back to the stage and grabbing the ladders. And it's very, very, all very weird. And Jeff Jarrett is kind of having his little, uh, oh, I'm a main eventer kind of stage in his career. But I don't think anybody really ever bought him as a main eventer. He's just very uh, average. I've always thought Jeff Jarrett was very, very average and very skippable. Any segment he's in, it's very, very skippable. Um, but, I mean, the match was what it was. It was a ladder match. It was uh, pretty entertaining at some points, but it was it was okay. It felt kind of rushed. I mean, the pacing was just re- really weird in this match. I don't know how to explain it, but um, there didn't seem to be any like rhyme or reason for anything that they were doing. It just seemed to be kind of spot after spot at the ladder. Very WCW. This was a very WCW main event. So they do some ladder spots. Jeff does a swanton where uh, Jeff Jarrett is uh, laying on the ladder. Jeff Hardy puts Jarrett in between the ladder rungs and kind of like squishes him in between it. There were some good spots in this match, but the crowd wasn't really getting into it. Like I said, the pacing was just too weird. Um, But towards the end of the match, Scott Hall does a run in. Now, remember, Scott Hall is in Jarrett's corner. Kevin Nash is in Hardy's corner. Where is Kevin Nash, though? Oh, nobody knows. Remember, <laughs> fucking Shane Douglas is still out there trying to get answers from the limo driver. So Scott Hall comes out as uh, Jeff Hardy is climbing the ladder. Scott Hall grabs Jeff Hardy and gives him the razor's edge. Jeff Hardy's down. This gives Jeff Jarrett the opportunity to get back up. He starts climbing the ladder, but then Hardy retaliates. He starts climbing the ladder to stop Jarrett. They do a spot here where uh, Hardy's going to do a sunset powerbomb to Jeff Jarrett, but it was kind of botched. Hardy flips over. He, he grabs Jarrett, but Jarrett doesn't fall, and then he falls a little too late, and then it just looks very weird and messy. And then So both guys are on the floor. Both guys are on the ground. Both are knocked out. Who comes out? None other than Kevin Nash. Two really goofy, like... Bubblegum pop music. I don't know what the deal was there, but Nash comes out holding two guitars for for whatever reason. Both guys in the ring are starting to get up. Both are climbing the ladder on opposite ends. Nash gets in the ring. Scott Hall is also in the ring. Shocker. 
Kevin Nash gives Scott Hall a guitar, and they both whack Jeff Hardy with them. Jarrett has a third guitar somehow. I don't know where it came from. Jeff Jarrett has a third guitar. Whacks Jeff Hardy with it. So Jeff Hardy gets hit with a guitar three times, gets knocked off the ladder. Jarrett climbs up, grabs the title, retains his NWA title. Um, Like I said, I mean, the match is okay. It just had a very like WCW feel to it. It felt very silly and clunky at times. Um, and the pace was just strange. It was kind of hard to get into, but that's a Jeff Jarrett match for you, I guess. Um, after the match, Kevin Nash gets on the mic and uh, says, <laughs> so Jeff already had like green paint face paint on, right? Kevin Nash has a line where he's like, yeah, Jeff Hardy looks like he's green with envy because he saw me peeing next to him at the urinal earlier in the day or something like that. It was such like a dad joke. It was such a immature fucking, it was funny. I don't know. I laughed. Um, So Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and I guess Jeff Jarrett, they're all in some sort of faction together. Um, Some sawed off version of the NWO, I guess. And then uh, they basically challenge anybody to stop them. And then, uh, who comes out to stop him? None other than AJ Styles. Styles comes out. Remember, he just lost a match a few minutes ago, so he's still like holding his neck from the Canadian Destroyer. Again, selling that move as a major finisher. AJ comes out, tries to fight all of them, but gets fucking stomped. I don't know what he expected. There's three of them. There's one of him. They're all stomping out AJ. Then the three live crew comes out, but... uh. They all get overcome by this this Jeff Jarrett and the Outsiders as well, for some reason. Jarrett, Hall, Nash are all standing tall in the ring. Who is going to make the save? That person is who steps out of that limo that I mentioned earlier. They've been building to this all night. Who's in the limo? Who's in the limo? You see the door open. You see a shot of the shoes that step out. Camera pans back to the ring. The Macho Man. The fucking Macho Man comes out to the ring. And he just gets stopped by the security guards. Yeah, they they they, they don't let him in the ring. He, he comes out. He says hi, but he doesn't do anything. Um, Kind of... <laughs> that's how the pay-per-view ends. <laughs> It's such a weird ending to such a weird show. Uh, Macho Man debuts. He, he like walks down the ramp. He tries to get in the ring. Security doesn't let him. And then the show's over. Very interesting. But um, <laughs> the whole show was very interesting, to say the least. The good, the bad, the ugly. It was all very... Um, well, most of it was very entertaining. But it was all very interesting to see kind of to get back in that time machine and kind of see how wrestling was in this company during this era. I mean, there was a lot of good. I think a lot of the best is still yet to come. Remember, we haven't seen Samoa Joe yet. You know, Kurt Angle, Sting, Christian. There is so much good shit in the future for TNA, and I think I'm going to stick with this. I think I'm going to keep watching the TV shows, the Impact shows. Because you got to remember, I mean, it's, it's once a week for an hour, and I figure without commercials, it's probably like, what, 45 minutes or so? 
you can knock out a whole month like nothing right and then all of a sudden you're at the next pay-per-view so i think i'm gonna keep doing these little binges here and um along with the uh the wwf attitude era binges i'm doing um figure while we're at home quarantined what better time it's not like they're giving us live content to watch you know what i mean um so yeah tna early tna has some really good shit and i look forward to watching some more with you guys and uh giving some more reviews of here of uh total and non-stop action thanks again for listening everybody i'm hard